Hi, I'm Tej Singh, and welcome to Office Hours with Dorm Room Fund, where we interview some of the most successful people in startups, technology, and corporate America. Dorm Room Fund is a student-run venture capital firm backed by First Run Capital. We write seed checks of $20,000 into startups founded by fellow students. Since our founding in 2014, we've funded over 275 startups, which are now collectively worth over a billion dollars and have gone on to raise over $500 million in follow-on funding from Sequoia, Andreessen Horowitz, Excel, and others. To pitch us, go to dormroomfund.com. Enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Tej Singh, and I'm joined by Anna Harmon and Lisa Bubbers, the co-founders of Studs. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So tell us about your childhood. Where did you grow up? So this is Lisa. I grew up in Los Angeles, California, up on Beverly Glen and Mulholland. I uh, had two doctor parents. My dad is a bioimmunologist, and he worked on developing new drugs for blood diseases. And my mom was the chief of geriatrics at Kaiser Hospital, and she ran nursing homes and hospice. And I have one older sister, Emily. She lives in Montana, and she's a colorectal surgeon. So I come from a whole family of medicine. I um, guess you're in medicine too, right? With, we're, <laughs> with yeah. piercings and whatnot. A little bit. It's actually been helpful. You know, we use them a little bit when we were figuring out our policies. Talk about, uh, so growing up, was your childhood like 90210 and that type of? <laughs> yeah, it was. I went to um, a very liberal arts private school in the valley called Oakwood. A lot of celebrity children went there. Like? You know, Danny DeVito's children went there, Samuel Jackson, etc. And you called your teacher by the first name. It was 80 kids per class, really, really focused on the arts. Wait, 80? Okay, okay, per, per grade, per not grade. per individual room. Okay, yes, yeah, yeah. per grade. And so I was thinking with the tuition you pay, wow, they're not really <laughs> getting a bang for their buck with that student to teacher ratio. But, you know, it was really focused on creativity and it was great. And then I went to Penn for college in Philadelphia and I studied visual studies, which was a new major that started when I was a freshman. And it was sort of the intersection of art, culture, uh, philosophy, and all through the lens of how we see. And so then I, I did a whole thesis on curating. I thought I wanted to be in the arts. What's that bar on 40th Street that people often go? I forget. It's at 40th and Walnut, or I forget. Whatever. Smokes. Smokes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, what a blast from the past. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I loved Smokes. <laughs> and then Anna? Sure. So I grew up in Bronxville, New York, which is about 30 minutes outside of the city. My father is an architect. My mother is a business person and has worked in varying senior roles at many big corporations. I went to school from K through 12, about 15 minutes away from my house um, at a private school, which really emphasized academics. And then after that, I went to Princeton. Both of you, what was, did you have any siblings? No, I'm an only child, which is unsurprising (laughs) to most people who know me. And then Lisa, so speaking of your sister, did you often kind of get in trouble and blame something on her? Any funny stories you have? Any pranks that you pulled while you were younger? Yes, my claim to fame, and actually my parents bring it up a lot now, I I was the bad child, you know, I was the one that was getting in trouble, my sister was perfect. My friends and I, when my parents were away my senior year of high school, we threw a house party 
where I actually only let people into the backyard and then we charged people. Me and my friends charged people to get into the backyard. This is so entrepreneurial. It was so entrepreneurial and there were lines to get in. It was all the cool kids this from is all mini the studs. schools. And it was mini studs. And now when there are lines to get into studs, my parents always joke that I, you know, charged people to get into their backyard when I was in 12th grade. That's amazing because my version of that growing up, which my parents often talk about and tease me about, was sort of my first entrepreneurial endeavors. You know, I bet you have, Tej, a lot of entrepreneurs on the show that talk about their first lemonade stand or whatever. My version of that was every night when I was probably, let's say, five to seven, I would set up a store in my room and I would sell my parents back the things that they had bought for me for like a quarter to a dollar each. And so they would come home for work, from work and they would come into my room and I would have prepared my entire little retail environment and I would be selling them literally the possessions that they had, you know, that past weekend already purchased for me. And to be clear, for me, I was sort of like, this is a very effective enterprise. For them, they were sort of like, is she money laundering? <laughs> That's great with a CAC of zero. And yeah, exactly. Infinite LTV considering you're forced to live in the same totally. home. Totally. What about, yeah, that, that was really interesting. Did you, so I, it reminds me of Gary Vaynerchuk and how I think he said when he was younger, he used to go to random people's backyards, pick out flour, then go to the front of the house and sell it to them. Maybe he said that's something people should do to hustle. I forget though. What about any nicknames? Any of you have any? Oh, Yes. My childhood nickname is, which my childhood nickname was Pickle and is Pickle from my mom calling me that. She calls me Pickle or Miss Pickle. And I made the deeply fatal error of telling my husband that probably about five years ago. And so now he calls me that. And I don't think I will ever shake it. My last name, Bubbers, lends to a lot of good nicknames. So my sister is not only older, but she's six feet tall and I'm 5'1". And so I got a lot of Lil Bubs, but, you know, Bubbers and Bubbies and Bubs are all, you know, great last names. I guess she got all the height chromosomes or however <laughs> it works from the parents. Yeah, my dad's very tall and my mom's short and they just split. <laughs> what was college like? Did you, were you in any clubs? Did you, where'd you intern over the summers? Any interesting stories? Yeah, for me, I was really interested in the arts and so I interned at the Institute of Contemporary Art on campus while I was doing my thesis on curating. And a lot of my friends from Penn are still in the arts now. And, you know, when I got to New York, I uh, did a project at the School of Visual Arts. I always thought I'd be, and then I applied to be an interior architect to get a master's of interior architecture at Parsons. So I always thought I would be on the sort of art practice side and ended up on the business side, which is much better suited to me. But that was sort of where my passion for art started when I, was when I was at Penn. And Parsons is really expensive. I was talking to someone who did a year there and then transferred out because it's like $60,000 a year. I thought Penn was expensive, yep. NYU, but no, Parsons is really, you know, breaks the bank. And I'll tell you, when I was applying to Parsons, I had a job at Ogilvy and then I moved over to 1100 Architect to have a marketing job there so I could see what it was like to work at a really interior-driven architecture firm. And after seeing what the salaries were of people that had gotten their master's, after I got into Parsons, I was like, I'm not going to do this. This is way too expensive for what my salary is going to be when I get out. And also, if I design a staircase, someone is likely to 
you know, die on it. Yeah. And so <laughs> I, I just didn't do that. And I went and backpacked through South America for six months instead. I guess all that money that they don't give you at the firm goes to liability insurance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what was backpacking through South America like? Did you go with any friends? What's the craziest encounter you had? Yeah, so I went with my then boyfriend who I had met in college. And so at this point I was 25 and we had been together for five years. You know, he was the only person I could backpack together with for six months, but I will say we broke up at the end. So I don't necessarily recommend uh, backpacking for six months through seven countries with someone. It's a little awkward. It in the middle. You, <laughs> yeah, the of, you, you already paid for hotels and flights <laughs> for three months. But we, the craziest thing we did was there's a program called WOOF, which is the World Organization of Farming, which allows you to do basically stays on farms for free in exchange for labor. And we found one that was in the north desert of Chile on the coast. And the guy actually didn't have a farm. He was building geodesic domes in the middle of the desert and needed people to help him build these like geodesic art installations. And there was like penguins and you were in the most remote part of the world. And you basically stayed in this place that had like one solar panel and one you know, flame, and you just like live there and build these geodesic domes. And we did that for two weeks. So how did he make money off that? He happened to be the senator's son and was just sort of like, he also would look for buried treasure and had expeditions. He was just a totally eccentric person that was sort of self-financing this bizarre mission. But it was really fun and weird. If you ever found the Fountain of Youth, let me know. You could definitely (laughs) use it. And Anna? Sure. So college. My college experience was mostly around, I guess, socially really focused on making new friends, trying to get out of my comfort zone. Like I said, I had gone to the same high school from K through 12 and had a pretty insular community at that high school. And when I went to Princeton, I all of a sudden had a really wide network of friends from different walks of life who had grown up in really different environments than I had. And I really loved that aspect of it. Academically, I continued to pursue what I had loved in high school, which was English. I was an English major. And then I also took a lot of different classes in things that had nothing to do with what I would ultimately do in terms of both my career and my academic interests, like things like the sociology of medicine, et cetera. And I remember that being really exciting because it was very thought expanding for me. I had never learned things like that. So I would say truly focus on both social experiences, new people, as well as on new types of academics that I hadn't done before. What was it like going from an English major to kind of Bridgewater, especially their analytics department? Totally. So I went to law school immediately after college. And I think English actually really helped me with law school because so much of being um, in law school and then being a lawyer is about analytical understanding of writing. And so that English actually, I think, translated really well into practicing law. Bridgewater had nothing to do with college whatsoever. I really actually think being a lawyer helped me with Bridgewater because Bridgewater's environment and culture is very structured around productive debate. And law school had really focused me on that. Talk about, so did you meet, obviously you met Dalio, but what was he like? Is it just like the book where radical transparency meetings are recorded? uh, Because either I heard either people love it or it's... uh, So I was there for over four years. I absolutely loved it. The first year was incredibly difficult. I would cry every day on the way home, driving home, and I would be on the phone with my parents crying, and I would be on the phone with my husband crying. And it was really emotionally difficult in the beginning because you're, while you may think that you are excited about the culture, being in the culture in practice, at least for me, was quite tough in the beginning. 
I think the other thing that has really changed about Bridgewater since I was there was in the beginning when I had first joined, Bridgewater was pretty tight uh, tight-lipped about how it operated. I mean, it was it had a website, and the people that work there would tell you about it, etc. But at the time, Bridgewater didn't talk that much to the media. It wasn't super externally facing, etc. That has changed tremendously since I was there. Ray obviously has written his book. He now does podcasts and media opportunities. And Dahlia, if you're listening, we would love to have you on. <laughs> and so I think he has made Bridgewater much more accessible to people, which is great because at the time, you know, when I joined, my friends and family were sort of like, you're going to join this weird cult. <laughs> and in fact, I mean, it was really a transformative experience for me. Like, I would I would love to return there in my future life. I, I really think it has made me into the business person that I am today. I think it changed my personality a bit. Like, I really value and I'm incredibly appreciative of my time there. Seems like a very Princeton thing, Bridgewater. For some reason, Princeton is, to me, the Ivy that is very, there's like very finance stuff, right? Except for, and technically, don't they have that major, what is it? Operations, research, and finance is a big thing at Princeton. And then the other thing was Princeton and Dartmouth were actually the two schools that sent the most alums to Bridgewater. Dartmouth, that's liberal arts, but yet Bridgewater is highly technical. What was kind of, well, I guess people at what I've read Mm -hmm. is that they don't really care about, you know, the pedigree or the kind of the skills you have. It's more so about how you think and kind of being able to solve problems on your feet. So I guess it helps getting a liberal arts education in that regard. And they were really interested in hiring people from all walks of life, you know, people that had been former race car drivers, people that had been professional poker players. They were much more interested in your true raw abilities than they were in the skills that you had because they believed and i think this is true that skills can be taught i'm surprised they didn't make you take an iq test or they didn't make all their applicants take an iq test as part of joint or did they (laughs) not an iq test but they are very big fans of personality testing and and personally it has made me big fan of personality testing because i think it can show a lot of revealed preferences about candidates so they had everyone do the intj or those four yeah we took the mbti test i am an entj i really associate well with other entjs as i've learned (laughs) and i think that it was like I said, I think that type of testing can be really effective and sh- less about the science behind it, but more about the revealed preferences that it can show of a person. So talk about studs. It's it's a really interesting model. There's been a lot of these, I guess, this wave of companies that take old versions of, you know, previously the incumbents like dental or eyeglasses, and now they're opening retail versions of those uh, stores. So it's challenging, obviously, because it's harder to scale. But I think there's a really interesting opportunity out there. And can you talk about how you're really revolutionizing this entire space? And yeah, sure. I've never really gotten ear piercing, so I don't know what the <laughs> old experience is like. But talk about you know some of the things you've done. Sure. So the background on why we started the business was about a year and a half ago, I went to go get a second piercing. And I went to a very premium jewelry store where I was told that I would have to wait two hours and I was told that my piercing and my piece my earring would be probably anywhere between three and seven hundred dollars and I was sort of like this is way too expensive I'm not going to wait around for this and Lisa ended up accompanying me to get pierced at a tattoo parlor and that was a really interesting experience because while the piercing was great healthy and safe done with a needle I really loved my piercer the jewelry wasn't great and it still was expensive. I spent about $125 on my piercing and the environment was really well ill-suited to me. Like I felt very personally out of place there. And so 
at the time, Lisa and I started thinking about, well, it seems like there's a real opportunity here to create an environment that is meant for healthy and safe piercing and actually has accessibly priced jewelry and that that didn't really exist, that all of the places that had been had, had existed to date were either mall brands that were really meant for preteens like like the Claire's of the world that pierced with guns and that is not the most healthy and safe way to get pierced. What is the? Using needles. Okay. And then simultaneously you had very premium jewelry stores or tattoo parlors and there wasn't really anything in between and we felt there was a hole in the market. Yeah, and I think when Anna and I came across this opportunity, it was really a light bulb moment for us because it really suited our skill sets and talents. Um, Anna and I have known each other for 10 years and we wanted to work on something together. I come from a brand strategy, content, marketing, partnership, influencer, press, uh, design background. Anna comes from a background in operations, uh, chief customer officer, finance, and law background. And so we both had worked on in-person services businesses, and we had both worked on consumer businesses. And this really, really played into our strengths. And so it's hard to run a hospitality in-person services retail business that also has a digital online component. And I think we just happen to really be suited to this business. So you raised from Haley Barna from First Round, an incredible investor. Talk about your fundraising process. What were some of the questions VCs kept asking a lot because, you know, they're worried about? I'm assuming it's about the retail, right? Because it's hard. It's challenging to have a where you open up, you know, retail because you can't really if you if a location doesn't perform, it's not like you can't pack up shop and, you know. Yeah. You know, Haley is amazing. She was a big supporter of ours and we'd been talking to her for a long time and she was a mentor. And so we presented her with studs as a concept and she really helped us think through the opportunity. And the questions are, what's the repeat? How many times is, so someone, is that? Well, what is a good? What is the repeat? Right. So, how many times is someone going to get an ear piercing? And our answer to that is studs is about earscaping. So we think about ears as real estate for self-expression, and it's a service where people want healthy, accessibly priced needle piercing with a cool jewelry assortment, and then they also want to change their look and merchandise all of these holes. As Anna and I say, no one just wants a hole in their head. You know, people are using this so they can put jewelry in it, and they're putting jewelry in their ears so they can self-express. And so our idea is to really connect this offline service to the merchandising of your ear. And you can do that when you shop in the store for earrings and you can do that online. And we pre-curate looks and we curate an assortment um, that isn't just one style. It's about a number of different looks. So you can change out your style. Anna and I swap between, uh, I'm wearing a bunch of silver hoops today. Anna's wearing some dainty gold. We have some really, really fun collabs. And so for us, this is really about earscaping, and that was the concept we invented to show both repeat on the piercing service and then repeat into jewelry sales. I also think the macro environment in terms of investing is really changing in its attitude towards real estate because a lot of the original direct-to-consumer brands have pivoted back into physical experiences because for many types of services and products, customers actually really want to shop in store. And so I think the attitude towards a brick and mortar first business has really shifted from where it was maybe five to seven years ago. Yeah, and we, even with all these D2C brands, a lot of their revenue comes from in stores. I think Harry's is now, just the other day announced, they're in either CVS or Walgreens. And obviously everyone sees them in Target, and I didn't realize they were also in Walmart too. So it goes to show that, you know, it's a- it's Multi-channel a big, distribution yeah, is important. Yeah. What about, 
So I didn't, the other thing that was really interesting to me, I didn't realize is, do you have to get a different ear piercing for different types of jewelry? Like if someone wants to get a different, you said because people swap out, do they have to so, come back for a different, bigger hole or a smaller hole? You have to get pierced, or you should get pierced with certain types of earrings, and they have a type of construction. They have a flat back called labrays. They have certain metals like titanium, and they have certain widths and gauges, and this is really about healing. So studs uses different piercing jewelry, and then we call everything that you swap into when your holes are healed fashion jewelry. And so we would never pierce you with these large hoops that I'm wearing right now. You get pierced with certain earrings, and I think the opportunity there was that Usually piercing assortments are fairly limited and they're not that cute. I mean, girls that get pierced at nine or 10 back in the day always got pierced with like a little gold ball. That was like the thing. And for us, really being able to get pierced with a skull or with a lightning bolt or, you know, be able to get piercing jewelry that's really cute that you want to wear for three months while you heal is really important. And then having a wide assortment of fashion jewelry. So we have 400 SKUs to then merchandise into after you heal. What was that like? Did you have to go through a wholesaler to kind of bring in all that stuff? Is it D to C? Did you reach out to the founders of these you know, brands? We work with a variety of different partners to procure all of our jewelry. But our main goal is really how do you have an extremely broad assortment? Most jewelry brands have a particular look and feel that they're trying to communicate to the customer. And for us, because we believe studs is about self-expression, we are very focused on how can you actually carry something for everyone. And speaking of real estate, so now I think you'd m- mentioned you're in Hudson Yards. That's probably... Is it really expensive square footage because that's like a premium location or is it, are they kind of trying to attract new people to the uh, that area and so they've kind of kept it lower than, say, Soho? Well, we have a really un- unusual and unique space in the mall and so I think that's benefiting us. So Dirty Lemon, a direct-to-consumer drinks brand, formerly had a vending machine space in Hudson Yards, which they left probably you know six or eight months ago. And we actually just took over that space, and it's only 150 square feet. So it's teeny, teeny, tiny. Yes, it's a mini studs. <laughs> and so we, for us, one of the things that's a real advantage for our business is because piercing doesn't require a lot of fixturing and jewelry is quite small, we can operate in these really small spaces. And part of the reason we opened there was because we wanted to work through what it would be like to work in 150 square feet. And so we're really excited about the opportunity. It reminds me of last week we interviewed the founder of uh, Baked by Melissa and they talked about how they didn't have, I, I don't think they raised VC money and they didn't have much money and they had to obviously open these retail shops. So they only, now it's iconic that they have these small kind of boots or the, you yeah. know, you can't even walk into their stores, but it all started out of a necessity and now it's kind of been, people love that, right? It's quick. It's easy come in, come out, I guess there's you know opportunity for you guys to do something exactly. similar and really re- revolutionize how retail is done. Talk about what the vision is for five years from now. Are there any other types of services you can provide? What's the ideal scenario you know, in 2025, let's say? I think the main thing for us is really doing 2020 well. Mm-hmm. The, the business launched four months ago, and I think both Lisa and I from an orientation- You couldn't tell by how amazing the website looks and oh, all I thank the you. branding and everything. Well, you know, I think for both Lisa and I, we are very focused from a customer value proposition perspective on do this one thing really well right now, which is get ear piercing right, create an amazing hospitality experience, and get earscaping 
done well. I think if we do that, we will be able to establish trust with these early consumers that are really excited about the brand. And that could give us license to do lots of other things. But if we don't get that right, then we shouldn't really be expanding into other opportunities because the customer isn't asking for it. And we haven't even forged that great relationship with them to start. How much does it cost to get a piercing? So we combine the cost of service plus the cost of jewelry, and we really have a wide pricing range to sort of accommodate multiple different pocket sizes. So the service is, sorry, the... One piercing is 35, two piercings are 50. 50. I was about to say 30, but the jewelry starts at 30 and goes up to 100. So um, 65 for the, the cheapest. the lowest price point for one. And then we also do a lot of two piercings at once, which we call the stud snake bite. What's that? Um, oh, so, like not one on each year, two no, on each year? Two together in like a little, uh, imagine like a snake okay. doing a little bite. So you get like two little piercings right next to each other. So the service of that is 50 plus the cost of two of the earrings. And what's really fun is people are putting together, let's say, a money sign and a heart or two little CZs. And so that's becoming a really unique piercing. Initials, that studs. yeah. Yeah, uh, Kaya Gerber got that right when Studs launched. She's a supermodel. And that be, sort of like I think took I follow off. follow her on Instagram. Yeah, <laughs> you probably do. So we're also focused focused on just to the vision, things like the stud snake bite, or we also have the Bermuda Triangle where you have a piercing above your two existing piercings are like branded studs piercings that are different than what maybe you would think to get at another piercing parlor. And so we're really focused on creating these branded looks and then also collaborating with other designers, whether that be on fashion or piercing jewelry to offer the customer something that doesn't exist in the market. How are you marketing it to customers? Do you, so I think in the beginning, Warby Parker used to, so I, I go to this, I go to Vision Works in Center City in Philly for my eyes and Warby Parker's across the street and the Vision Works person was like, when they first launched, they literally stood outside our door and started giving flyers out. So are you, is out of home really effective for you? Have you tried <laughs> Facebook Savage. and Google? Um, so we have a really organic driven marketing strategy. The playbook for us is really about community and about content. So we have a hundred ambassadors on the platform, a lot of them college aged or right out of college. They, we have a unique approach to ambassador. We, they're really our models, our interns and our best advocates. We shoot our ambassadors with our jewelry, we gift to them, and then we use them as, we use those assets for out of home, out of home like wheat pacings, and we also have a partnership with iconic mag delis. So we use that as a sort of hyper local out of home. And then we also use those assets on our website and on our Instagram. And then we do a lot of influencer seating. So we get give influencers free piercings and they create content for us, but they're huge fans of the brand. None of it is paid. And I think for us, this grassroots, organic, hyper-local strategy, plus an authentic service, you can't get pierced digitally, is a really, really strong combination um, and is, is also driving the digital business as well as the offline business. Talk about the whole, the way in which people book an appointment. So I guess at Claire's and all these other places, you can't really book in advance and it goes the whole antiquated way these incumbents perform, whereas I guess you can book stuff online too, right? And probably from your phone and maybe through SMS in the future. Yeah, so we take both appointments and walk-ins and we really believe there are two customers and that's part of the reason we do that. There is the customer that really wants to be planful, like I was actually, who wants to book an appointment, actually is looking forward to it, but wants it to be a more planned experience versus the customer who goes to brunch with three friends and is like, let's go get a piercing after brunch. And that person is much more spontaneous, et cetera. And so we use a software platform that lets them 
walk in and we actually have them put their names down and then we'll text them when we're ready for them like you would at a restaurant. I mentioned earlier that I loved your branding. Did you hire someone in-house to do it? Did you go through an agency? How did you think about that whole process? Clearly it worked out really well. So we didn't use an agency. I come from a brand strategy and uh, branding background. And so it was me working with a couple really key graphic designers and creatives to create the brand. I think I worked with four different people on all the components of the brand, whether that be the logo or the art direction or the store design. And it was really about, I was basically a mini in-house agency and the strategist that worked with a bunch of creatives to create it. So let's move on to our rapid fire questions. If you could live anywhere in the world for a year, where would it be? For me, Anna, it's London. My husband is a dual citizen and we spend a lot of time there. For me, it would be the Amalfi Coast in Italy and just like, you know, jumping in the ocean and sunsets. If you had an unlimited supply of one thing for the rest of your life, what would it be? I'm deciding between cheese plates and massages. (laughs) I was saying to Lisa earlier, I think this is a really interesting question because it's, do you choose something really practical like toilet paper, something you never sort of enjoy buying but have to spend a lot of money on? Or do you choose something that's very frivolous, like very luxurious face cream? And I think I land in face cream land. (laughs) That's right. The the two ply is really expensive, right? <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. Right. And you and it's it's not cheap. You need it all the time. You never are not going to need it. Like it'd be nice if it were free. I love how on Amazon they have the so in stores when you shop, often Costco and whatever they'll break it down to per pound or you know when you're buying groceries or but now on Amazon they have like per thousand sheets or whatever. So it's <laughs> it goes yeah, yeah, yeah. Online shopping is just so much better than. I also just bought my hand sanitizer. Probably in bulk. (laughs) Bulk, yeah. Yeah, you're right, because they wouldn't sell it individually. Exactly. And I'm not expecting coronavirus to be here for the next six years, but I guess with the purchase I did, it looks like... You'll be very healthy. (laughs) Yep. If a movie was being made of your life and you could choose the actor or actress to play you, who would you choose and why? I chose Rose Byrne. I just think of her as incredibly funny and cool. For me, Natalie Portman, people say we look alike. What is something you can do better than anyone else you know? So I have this funny belief that everyone in the world has a true thing that they are the best at, no matter whether that thing is a thing like you're an Olympic swimmer or a thing that's extremely esoteric. And so the thing that I talk about with my friends about being the best at is I am very good identifier of pasta shapes. So if you give me the name of a pasta, I can identify the shape. I do not have an answer to this question, but now I'm going to search for it and figure out what I'm the best at in the world. Would you rather be filthy rich and live 400 years ago or be middle class today? Apparently, as you were telling us, most of your guests say middle class today, but I definitely think 400 years ago, filthy rich seemed like a wonderful lifestyle experience. I was joking to Anna that I don't think I would have survived then. Like I'm constantly getting sick and getting every virus out there. So I'm kind of like, I would just be killed off 400 years ago, I think really early on. I think I would have thrived. It seemed extremely (laughs) decadent and over the top. And I sort of imagine that that would be, even if for a brief period, like if you lived much less long and you you know died at 35, it would have been a really fun 35 years. I think with an immunologist dad, I'm very aware of all the diseases that have been cured in the last 400 years. So I choose today. 
Oh, yeah. I wonder what it would have been like to just hang out with these kings and <laughs> King Louis XIV go bar hopping with them and like... Bar hopping. Yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, they're just going to the local pub. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, he could have bought the entire... Idea. I also think as a woman, 400 years ago, yeah, that's people, rough. Someone else oh, no, too. the outfits. Think of the outfits. The outfits. I guess if you're the queen 400 years ago or like, you know, the right hand, you're good. But if you're like a regular lady 400 years ago, it was yeah, not Yeah, you're filthy rich in the prom. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> you're Marie Antoinette. I'm like, yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Plus, speaking of uh, cakes and bread, I yeah, the the meat, yeah, the cost of labor was so low back then. Mm. Real estate, I guess, was low. Maybe studs would have been uh, exactly. Great. You know, ear piercing is a timeless art. It's true. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you for Thank having you. us.